This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. Today I'll be reading The Villabar Party and The Doorway by Evelyn E. Smith. Evelyn Smith was born in 1927 and died recently in 2000. She was a native resident to New York City who wrote over 40 science fiction stories in the 50s and 60s. In the 60s and 70s, she also wrote a series of gothic romances under the pseudonym Delphine C. Lyons, with titles like House of Four Widows or The Depths of Yesterday. She also wrote a nonfiction book under the pseudonym uh, On Everyday Witchcraft. She was a professional compiler of crossword puzzles for publications including the New York Times. In the 80s, she wrote murder mysteries about Miss Susan Melville, a gently bred art teacher slash painter turned assassin. In today's hour, we are focusing on 1955. In the background, you have been hearing Mario Davidovsky's Suite Symphonica para el Peso for orchestra, which was composed in 1955. Davidovsky is an Argentinian-American composer who's best known for Synchronisms, a series of 12 musical compositions for solo ensemble or live instruments and pre-recorded tape. The piece that you're listening to now was composed before Synchronisms and before David Oski immigrated to the United States and started working with tape and electronic music.
This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM Santa Barbara 91.9. I'll start today with The Volbar Party. The Volbar Party first appeared in Galaxy Science Fiction January 1955. The Vilbar Party by Evelyn E. Smith. The Purcells are giving a Vilbar party tomorrow night. Gnarly. Gnarly rubs his forehead fretfully. You know how I feel about parties, Karn. He took a frismal nut out of the tray on his desk and nibbled it in annoyance. Well, this is in your honor, Gnarly. A farewell party. You must go. It would be it would be unthinkable if you didn't. Karnslid's eyes were pleading. He could not possibly be held responsible for his friend's antisocial behavior, and yet, Gnarly knew he would somehow feel at fault. Gnarly sighed. He supposed he would have to conform to public sentiment in this particular instance, but he was damned if he would give in gracefully. After all, what's so special about the occasion? I'm just leaving to take another teaching job. That's all. He took another nut. That's all? Slid's face swelled with emotion. You can't really be that indifferent. Another job. That's all to me. Gnarly persisted. At an exceptional high salary, of course. I wouldn't dream of accepting a position so inconveniently located. Slid was baffled and hurt and outraged. You've been honored by being the first of our people to be offered an exchange professorship on another planet, he said stiffly. And you call it just another job. Why, I would have given my right antenna to get it. Gnarly realized that he had again overstepped the invisible boundary between candor and tactlessness. He poked at the nuts with a stylus. Honored by being the first of our species to be offered a guinea pig ship, he muttered. He had not considered this aspect of the matter before, but now that it occurred to him, he was probably right. Oh, I don't mind it, really, he waved away the other's sudden commiseration. You know, I like being alone most of the time, so I won't find it that uncomfortable. Students are two to students, whether they're terrestrial or Saturnians. I suppose they'll laugh at me behind my back, but then even here, my students always did that. He gave a hollow laugh and unobtrusively put one of his hands in for a nut. At least on Earth, I'll know why they're laughing. There was a pain on Slade's expressive face, and he firmly removed the nut tray from his friend's reach. I didn't think of it from that angle, Gnarly. Of course you're right. Human beings, from what I've read of them, are not noted for tolerance. It would be difficult, but I'm sure you'll be able to... He choked on the kindly lie. Win them over? (laughs) Gnarly repressed a bitter laugh. Anyone less likely than he to win over a hostile alien species through sheer personal charm could hardly be found on Saturn. Gnarly Xan had been chosen as the first exchange professor between Saturn and Earth because of his academic reputation, not his personality. But again, the choosers had probably not had that aspect of matter in mind. The choice, he thought, was a wise one. As an individual of solitary habits, he was not apt to be much lonelier on one planet than another. And he accepted the post largely because he felt, as an alien being, he would be left strictly alone. This would give him a chance, 
to put in a lot of work on his definitive history of the solar system, a monumental project from which he begrudged all the time he had to spend in fulfilling even the minimal obligations expected of a professor on a sociable Saturn. The salary was a weighty factor, too. Not only was it more than twice what he had been getting, but since there would be no necessity for spending more than enough for bare subsistence, he would be able to save up a considerable amount and retire while comparatively young. It was pleasant to imagine a scholarly life unafflicted by students. He could put up with a good deal for that goal. But how could he alleviate the distress he saw on Karen's face? He did not consciously want to hurt the only person who, for some strange reason, seemed to be fond of him. So he said the only thing he could think of to please him. All right, Karn, I'll go to the Purcells tomorrow night. It would be a deadly bore. Parties always were. And he would eat too much. But after all, the thought that it would be a long time before he'd ever seen any of his own kind again would make the affair almost endurable. And just this once, it would be all right for him to eat as much as he wanted. When he was on Earth, out of reach of decent food, he would probably trim down considerably. I just know you're going to love Earth, Professor Dan, the hostess on the interplanetary liner gushed. I'm sure I shall, he lied politely. She smiled at him too much, overdoing her professional cordiality. Underneath the effusiveness, he sensed repulsion. Of course, he couldn't blame her for trying not to show her distaste for the strange creature. The effort at concealment was, as a matter of fact, more than he expected from a terrestrial, but he wished she would leave him alone to meditate. He had planned to get a lot of meditation done on the journey. "'You speak awfully good English,' she told him. He looked at her. "'I'm said to have some scholarly aptitude.' I understand that's why I was chosen as an exchange professor. It does seem reasonable, doesn't it? She turned pink, a sign of embarrassment with these creatures he had learned. I didn't mean to question your ability, professor. It's just, well, you don't look like a professor. Indeed, he said frostily. And what do I look like, then? She turned even rosier. Oh, I don't know. Exactly, it's just that... Well, uh, and she fled. He couldn't resist flicking his antenna forward to catch her Soto voice conversation with the co-pilot. It was so seldom you got a chance to learn what others were saying about you behind your back. But I could hardly tell him he looks like a teddy bear, could I? He probably doesn't even know what a teddy bear is. Perhaps I don't, Gnarly thought resentfully. But I can guess. With low cunning, the terrestrials seemed to have ferreted out the identity of all his favorite dishes and kept serving them to him incessantly. By the time the ship made planetfall on Earth, he had gained ten grisbits. Oh well, he thought. I suppose it's just part of the regular diplomatic service. On Earth, I'll have to eat crude native foods, so I'll lose all the weight again. President Purrington of North America came himself to meet Gnarly at the airfield because Gnarly was the first interplanetary exchange professor in history. Welcome to our planet, Professor Xan, he said with a warm diplomatic cordiality, wringing Gnarly's upper right hand after a moment of indecision. 
We shall do everything in our power to make your stay here a happy and memorable one. I wish you could begin with doing something about the climate, Gnarly thought. It was stupid of him not to have realized how hot it would be on Earth. He was really going to suffer in this torrid climate, especially in the tight terrestrial costume he wore over his fur for sake of conformity. Of course, justice compelled him to admit to himself the clothing wouldn't have become so snug if he hadn't eaten quite so much aboard the ship. Purrington indicated to the female beside him. May I introduce my wife? Oh! The female gasped. Isn't he cute? The president and Gnarly stared at her in consternation. She looked abashed for a moment, then smiled widely at Gnarly and the press photographers. Welcome to Earth, dear Professor Xan! She exclaimed, mispronouncing his name, of course. Bending down, she kissed him right upon his fuzzy forehead. Kissing was not a Saturnian practice, nor did Gnarly approve of it. However, he had read enough about Earth to know that Europeans sometimes greeted dignitaries in this particular way. Only this place, he had been given to understand, was not Europe, but America. I'm having a cocktail party in your honor this afternoon, she beamed, smoothing her flowered print dress down over her girdle. You'll be there at five sharp, won't you, dear? Delighted, he promised dismally. He could hardly plead a previous engagement a moment after arriving. I've tried to get all the things you like to eat, she went on anxiously, but you will tell me if there's anything special, won't you? I'm on a diet, he said. He must be strong. Probably the food would be repulsive anyhow, so he'd had no difficulty controlling his appetite. Digestive disorders, you know. A glass of Vichy and a biscuit will be... He stopped, for there were tears in Miss Purrington's eyes. Your tummy hurts? Oh, you poor little darling! Gladys, the president said sharply. There were frismal nuts at Mrs. Purrington's cocktail party, and Villabar, and even Slipness Brugs, all the imported and fabulous expense, Gnarly knew. But then, this was a government affair, and expense means nothing to a government, since, as far as it's concerned, money grows on taxpayers. Some of the native foods proved surprisingly palatable, too. Pâté de foie gras and champagne, and little puff pastries full of delightful surprises. Gnarly was afraid he was making a zlugal of himself. However, he thought, trying not to catch sight of his own portly person in the mirrors that walled the room. The lean days were just ahead. Besides, what could he do when everyone insisted on pressing food on him? Try this, Professor Dan. Do try that, Professor Dan. Doesn't he look cunning in his little dress suit? They crowded around him. The women cooed, the men beamed, and gnarly ate. He would be glad when he could detach himself from all this cloying diplomacy and get back to the healthy rancor of the classroom. At school, the odor of chalk dust, ink, and rotting apple cores was enough like 
its Saturnian equivalent to make Gnarly feel at home immediately. The students would dislike him on sight, he knew. It is in the nature of the young to be hostile towards whatever is strange and alien. They would despise him and jeer at him, and he, in his turn, would give them long, involved homework assignments and such difficult examinations that they would fail. Gnarly waddled briskly up to his desk, which he saw had been scaled down to Saturnian size, whereas he had envisioned himself struggling triumphantly with ordinary earth-sized furniture. But the atmosphere was hot and sticky and intolerable as he had expected. Panting as unobtrusively as possible, he rapped with his pointer. Attention, students! Now should come the derisive babble. But there was a respective silence, broken suddenly by the shrill feminine whisper of, Oh, he's so adorable! Followed by a, Shh! Ava, you'll embarrass the poor little thing! Gnarly's face swelled. I am your new professor of Saturnian studies. Saturn, as you probably know, is a major planet. It is much larger and more important than Earth, which is only a minor planet. The students obediently took this down in their notebooks. They carefully took down everything he said. Even a bout of coughing that afflicted him halfway through seemed to be getting a phonetic transcription. From time to time, they would interrupt his lectures with questions so pertinent, so well thought out, and so courteous that all he could do was answer them. His antenna lifted to catch the whispers from time to time were exchanged between even the best-behaved of the students. Isn't he precious? Seems like a nice fellow, sound grasp of the subject. Sweet little thing. Unusually interesting presentation. Doesn't he remind you of Winnie the Pooh? Able chap. Just darling. After class, instead of rushing out of the room, they hovered around his desk with intelligent solicitous questions. Did he like Earth? Was his desk too high? Too low? Did he find it hot with all the fur? Such lovely, soft, fluffy fur, though. Do you mind if I stroke one of your paws? Uh, hands? Uh, professor? So cuddly looking. He said yes, as a matter of fact, he was hot. And no, he didn't mind being touched in the spirit of scientific investigation. He had a moment of uplift at the teacher's cafeteria when he discovered lunch to be virtually inedible. The manager, however, had been distressed to see him pick at his food, and by dinner time, a distinguished chef with an expert knowledge of Saturnian cuisine had been rushed from Washington. Since the school food was inedible for all intelligent life forms, everyone ate Saturnian dishes and praised Gnarly as a public benefactor. That night alone, in the quiet confines of his small room at the men's faculty club, Gnarly had spread out his notes and was about to start working on his history when there was a knock on the door. He trotted over to open it, grumbling to himself. The head of his department smiled brightly down at him. Some of us are going out for a couple of drinks and a gab fest. Care to come along? Gnarly did not see how he could refuse and still carry this Saturnian burden, so he accepted. 
discovering that gin fizzes and Alexander's were even more palatable than champagne and more potent than Villabar. He told several Saturnian locker room stories, which were hailed with loud merriment. But he was being laughed at, not with, he knew. All this false cordiality, he assured himself, would die down in a couple of days, and then he would be able to get back to work. He must curve his intellectual impatience. In the morning, he found that enrollment in his class had doubled, and the room was crowded to capacity with the bright, shining, eager faces of young terrestrials, a thirst for learning. There were apples, chocolates, imported frismal nuts on his desk, as well as a pressing invitation from Mrs. Purrington for him to spend all of his weekends and holidays at the White House. The window was fitted with an air conditioning unit, which he later discovered his classes had chipped in to buy for him. And the temperature had been lowered to a point where it was almost comfortable. All the students wore coats. When he went out on the campus, women, students, teachers, even strangers stopped to talk to him, to exclaim over him, to touch him, even to kiss him. Photographers were perpetually taking pictures, some of which turned up in the student union as full-color postcards. They sold like a jowl out of season. Gnarly wrote in Saturnian on the back of one, Having a miserable time. Be glad you're not here and sent it to salute. There were cocktail parties, musicals, and balls in Gnarly's honor. When he tried to refuse an invitation, he was accused of shyness and virtually dragged to the affair by laughing members of the faculty. He put on so much weight that he had to buy a completely new terrestrial outfit, which set him back a pretty penny. As a result, he had to augment his income by lecturing to women's clubs. They slobbered appallingly. Gnarly's students did all their homework assiduously and, in fact, put in more work than had been assigned. At the end of the year, not only did all of them pass, but with flying colors. I hope you'll remember, Professor Xan, the president of the university said, that there will always be a job waiting for you here. A non-exchange professorship. Love to have you. Thank you. Gnarly replied politely. Mrs. Purrington broke into loud sobs when he told her he was leaving Earth. Oh, I'll miss you so, Gnarly. You will write, won't you? Yes, of course, he said grimly. That made 218 people to whom he had promised to write. It was fortunate he was traveling as a guest of the North American government. He thought as he supervised the loading of his matched interplanetary luggage, his eight steamer baskets, his leather-bound Encyclopedia Terrestria, with his name imprinted in gold on each volume, his Indian war bonnet, his oil paintings of the president, his six cases of champagne, all parting gifts, onto the liner. Otherwise, the fee of excessive luggage would take what little remained of his bank account, There had been so many expenses, clothes and hostesses' gifts and ice. Not all of his mementos were in his luggage. A new rare metal watch gleamed on each of his four furry wrists. A brand new trobskin wallet, platinum keychain, and uranium fountain pen were in his pocket, and a diamond 
and curinium bobble clasped a tie lovingly hand-painted by a female student. The argyles on his fuzzy ankles had been knitted by another. Still another devoted pupil had presented him with a hand-woven plastic case full of frismal nuts to eat on the way back. Well, Gnarly, Slude said, his face swelling with joy. Well, well, you've put on weight, I see. Gnarly dropped into his old chair with a sigh. Surely Slude might have picked something else to comment on first. His haggardness, for instance, or the increased spirituality of his expression. Nothing else to do on earth in your leisurely moments, buddy, I suppose, Slude said, pushing over the nut tray. Even their food. Have some frismills. No, thank you, Gnarly replied coldly. Slude looked at him in distress. Oh, how you must have suffered! Was it very, very bad, Gnarly? Gnarly hunched low in his chair. It was just awful. I'm sure they didn't mean to be unkind, Slude assured him. Naturally, you were a strange creature to them, and they are only... Unkind? Gnarly gave a bitter laugh. They practically killed me with kindness. It was fuss, fuss, fuss all the time. Now, Gnarly, I do wish you wouldn't be so sarcastic. I'm not being sarcastic. I wasn't a strange creature to them. It seems there's a sort of popular child's toy on Earth known as... Uh, he winced. Teddy bear. I aroused pleasant childhood memories in them, so they showered me with affection and edibles. Slude closed his eyes in anguish. You're very brave, Gnarly, he said almost reverently. Very brave and wise and good. Certainly, that would be the best thing to tell our people. After all, the terrestrials are our allies. We don't want to stir up public sentiment against them. But you can be honest with me, Gnarly. Did they refuse to serve you in restaurants? Were you segregated in public vehicles? Did they shrink from you when you came close? Gnarly beat the desk with all four hands. I was hardly ever given the chance to be alone. They crawled all over me. Restaurants begged for my trade. I had to hire private vehicles because in public ones I was mobbed by admirables. Such a short time, Slude murmured, and already even suspicious of me, your oldest friend. But don't talk about it if you don't want to, Gnarly. Tell me, though, did they sneer at you and whisper half-audible insults? Did they... You're right, Gnarly snapped. I don't want to talk about it. Slude placed a comfortable hand upon his shoulder. Perhaps that's wisest until the shock of your experience is worn off. Gnarly made an irritable noise. The Prezels are giving a Villabar party tonight, Slude said. But I know how you feel about parties. I've told them you're exhausted from your trip and won't be able to make it. Oh, you did, did you? Gnarly asked ironically. What made you think you know how I feel about parties? But... There's an interesting saying on Earth. Travel is so broadening. He looked down at his bulges with tolerant amusement. In more than one way. In case the meaning eludes you. Very sound psychologically. 
I've discovered I like parties. I like being liked. If you excuse me, I'm going to inform the Prezels that I shall be delighted to come to their party. Care to join me? Well, Celine mumbled. I'd like to, but I have so much work. Introvert, said Gnarly, and he began dialing the Prezels. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I just read The Villabar Party, which first appeared in Galaxy Science Fiction January 1955. The Villabar Party is a story about a teddy bear-like alien's experience as the first visiting professor to a university on Earth. In the background, we've been listening to Sequence by Jean Barak which was composed in 1955. Sequence is a setting of Nietzsche for Sopranos, an ensemble, which is partly a reworking of three songs for soprano and piano that he had uh, composed in the early 50s. Next, we will be listening to Incontri by Luigi Nono, first performed in 1955. Luigi Nono was an Italian avant-garde composer of classical music. This work was composed right before Il Canto Sospirso, which gained him notoriety. So let's talk about the Vilbar Party. The Vilbar Party introduces teddy bear aliens over 20 years before Ewoks took the stage in Star Wars. Bear aliens and intelligent animals have become a trope in today's culture. The first hookah book, Earthman's Burden, by Paul Anderson and Gordon R. Dickinson, was published in 1957, just after this story. The hookah books were about alien teddy bears reenacting various time periods in history. Paul Anderson was an award-winning writer, though none of the awards were for those hookah books. Little Fuzzy is a 1962 juvenile science fiction novel by H. Beam Piper, which involved a species of tiny fuzzy people. It was nominated for the 1963 Hugo Award for Best novel. Teddy bear aliens have been seen throughout literature from David Brin's Uplift Universe, which he started in 1980, to contemporary writings by John Hemrys in the 2010s. Next, I will be reading The Doorway by Evelyn E. Smith. The Doorway was first published in Fantastic Universe, September 1955.
Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. Next, I will be reading The Doorway by Evelyn E. Smith. The Doorway was first published in Fantastic Universe, September 1955. The Doorway by Evelyn E. Smith It is my theory, Professor Falabella said, helping himself to a cookie, that no one ever really makes a decision. What happens is that whenever alternative courses of action are called for, the individuality splits up and continues on two or more divergent planes, very much like parthenogenesis of a unicellular animal. Delicious cookies, these, Mrs. Hughes. Thank you, Professor, Gloria simpered. I made them myself. You must give us the recipe, said one of the ladies, and the others murmured in agreement, glad to get their individualities on a plane they could understand. Since most decisions are hardly momentous, as the individual imagines, Professor Fabella continued, and since the imagination of the average individual is very limited, many of these different planes or as they are colloquially known, space-time continuums, may exist in close, even tangential, relationship. Gloria rose unobtrusively and took the teapot to the kitchen for a refill. Her husband stood by the sink, moodily drinking whiskey out of the bottle so as to avoid having to wash a glass afterwards. Bill, you're not being polite to our guests. Why don't you go out and listen to Professor Falabella? I can hear him perfectly well from here, Bill muttered. And indeed, the professor's mellifluous tones pervaded every nook and cranny of the thin-walled house. Long-winded cultist. What is he a professor of, I'd like to know? Professor Fabella is not a cultist, affirmed Gloria angrily. He's a great philosopher. Bill Hughes said something unprintable. If I'd married Lucy Allison, she'd never have filled the house with long-haired cultists on my so-called day of rest. He continued unkindly. Gloria's soft chin trembled and her blue eyes filled with tears. She was beginning to put on weight, he noticed. I've been hearing nothing but Lucy Allison, Lucy Allison, Lucy Allison for the past year. You said yourself she looked like a horse. Horses, he observed, have sense. He was being brutal, but he couldn't help it and didn't want to. Professor Falabella was only the most long-winded of a long series of mystics Gloria was forever dragging into the house. The trouble with the half-educated, he thought bitterly, is that they seek culture in the most particular places. I bet she would have let me have peace on Sunday, he said. It just goes to show what happens when you marry a woman solely for her looks. He drained the bottle, then hurled it into the garbage pail with a resounding crash. Gloria's shoulders shook as she filled the kettle. 
I wish I had decided to be an old maid, she sobbed. A very unlikely possibility, he thought. Even now, shopworn as she was, Gloria could have a fairly wide range of suitors, should something happen to him. She looked sexy, but how deceiving appearances could be. Professor Falabella was still talking as Bill and Gloria emerged from the kitchen. I believe that it is possible for an individual who exists on a limited plane of imagination to transpose from one plane to an adjacent one without difficulty. Great heavens, what was that? Something had whisked past the archway leading into the foyer. Don't pay any attention, Gloria smiled nervously. The house is haunted. My dear, one of the ladies offered, I know of the most marvelous exterminator. The house, Gloria assured her coldly, is really haunted. We've been seeing things ever since we moved in. And she really believed it, Bill thought. Believed that the house was haunted, that is. Of course, he had seen things too. But he was enlightened enough to know that ghosts don't exist, even if you do see them. Professor Falabella cleared his throat. As I was saying, it is possible to send the individual through another, well, dimension, as some popular writers would have it, to one of his other spatial existences on the same temporal plane. It is merely necessary for him to find the door. Nonsense, Bill interrupted. Holy and mitigated nonsense! Every head swiveled to look at him. Gloria restrained tears with an effort. Brute! Someone muttered. But ridicule apparently only stimulated the professor. He beamed. You don't believe me? Your imagination cannot extend to the comprehension of the multifariousness of space. Nonsense, Bill said again, but less confidently. I believe that I've discovered the doorway, Professor Falabella continued, and the way is open. However, most people fear to penetrate the unknown, even though it is to enter another phase of their own existence. I do admit that the shock of spatial transference, no matter how slight, combined with the concrete awareness of previous spatial relationship, would be perhaps too much for the keenly sensitive individualism. Bill opened his mouth. I know what you're about to say, young man. You don't have to be a mind reader to know that, Bill assured him. His consonants were already a little slurred, and he knew Gloria was ashamed of him. It served her right. He'd been ashamed of her for years. Professor Falabella smiled. His teeth were very sharp and white. Very well, Mr. Hughes, since you are a skeptic. Perhaps you will not object to being the subject of our experiment yourself. What kind of experiment? Bill asked suspiciously. Merely to go through the door. Any door can become the doorway, if it is transposed into the proper spatial dimension. That door, for instance. Professor Falabella waved his hand towards the doorway of what Gloria liked to call Bill's study. You mean you just want me to open the door and go into that room? Bill asked incredulously. 
That's all? That's all, of course. You go in with the awareness that it is the threshold of another plane and that you step voluntarily from this existence to an adjacent one. Sure, Bill said. He had just remembered there was a nearly full bottle of Calvert in the bottom drawer of the desk. Sure, anything to oblige. Very well. Go to the door and keep remembering that of your own free will you are passing from this plane to the next. Look out, everybody, Bill called raucously as he pulled open the door. I'm coming in on the next plane. Nobody laughed. He stepped over the threshold, shutting the door firmly behind him. A wonderful excuse to get away from those blasted women. He'd climbed out of the window as soon as he collected the whiskey and give them a nervous moment, thinking he'd really passed into another existence. It would serve Gloria right. For a moment, as he crossed, he had a queer sensation. Maybe there was something in what Professor Fellabella said. But no, there he was in the study. All that mumbo-jumbo was getting him down. That was all. He was a nervous man. Only nobody appreciated the fact. Taking a cigarette out from the pack in his pocket, he reached for the lighter on his desk. It wasn't there. Time and time again, he'd told Gloria not to touch his things, and she always disobeyed him. Company was coming, and she must tidy up. Cooking and cleaning, that was all she was good for. But this was carrying tidiness too far. She'd even removed the ashtrays. And where did that glass black paperweight come from? He'd had a penguin in a snowstorm, and he'd been happy with it. This was too much. He'd tell Gloria off, stealing a man's penguin. He opened the door into the living room and bumped into Lucy Allen. Don't you think you've been in there long enough, Bill? She asked, a criddly. I'm sure your guests would appreciate catching a glimpse of you. Why, hello, Lucy, he said, surprised. I didn't know Gloria had invited you. Gloria, 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 Lucy cut across his sentence. You've been talking about nothing but that dumb little blonde for months. Because of the people in the room beyond, her voice was pitched low, but her pale eyes glittered unpleasantly behind her spectacles. I wish you'd married her. You'd have made a fine pair. Gently, caressingly, the short hairs on the back of Bill's neck rose. Come back in here, Lucy said, hauling him back into the living room where a number of people who had been enjoying the domestic fracas suddenly broke into a loud and animated chatter. Dr. Hilbred was telling us about nuclear fission. Can't find an ashtray, Bill muttered, seizing on something tangible. Can't find an ashtray in the whole darn place. We've been over this a million times, Bill. You know, she smiled at the guests, a smile that carefully excluded Bill. I'm allergic to smoke, but I can never get my husband to remember he isn't supposed to smoke inside the house. Now take the neutron, for example, Dr. Hilbrand said through a mouth of pate. What is the neutron? It is only... What was that? The wraith of Gloria crossed the foyer 
and disappeared. Dolls took a step forward, then stood still. Lucy smiled self-consciously. That was nothing at all. The house is merely haunted. Everyone laughed. Forgot something, Bill muttered and dashed back into the study. He yanked open the bottom drawer of the desk. Surely enough, there was a bottle of Schnelli near a third full. There are some advantages, he thought, as he tilted it to his lips, in having, in having a limited imagination. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. I just read The Doorway, which first appeared in Fantastic Universe September 1955. The Doorway is a story about a husband who steps into an alternate timeline and is married to a different woman. In the background, you heard Xenakis's Pithar Prakta, which was composed in 1955. The title translates as Actions Through Probability. The piece is based on the statistical mechanics of gases. The title, Pithoprakta, relates to Jacob Bernoulli's Law of Large Numbers, which states that as the number of occurrences of a chance event increases, the more the average outcome approaches a determinate end. Each instrument is conceived as a molecule obeying the Maxwell-Boltzmann's distribution law, with a Gaussian distribution of temperature fluctuation. This theory states that the temperature of a gas derives from the independent movement of its molecules. Xenakis drew an analogy between the movement of a gas molecule through space and that of a string instrument through its pitch range. Xenakis governs the molecules according to a coherent sequence of imaginary temperatures and pressures. We are currently listening to Sonatine by Pierre Boulez, which was first performed in 1955.
is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. Evelyn Smith's stories are quite silly and mundane, which you can see with teddy bear aliens and marital alternative timelines. Roz Knivy argues that pre-1960s science fiction by women was overly sweet and concerned with the domestic. Here's a quote. The women science fiction writers of this period tended to be marginalized in one of three ways. One, editors were keen on stories which were feminine in the sense of being saccharine. The work of Zina Henderson and Judith Merrill does admittedly extend the rate of science fiction material to cover issues of nurture, but does so with that sentimentality with the science fiction of the time tended to confound with emotional truth. Two, women were encouraged to write light, jokey fiction, like that of Evelyn E. Smith, fiction which keeps a low temperature even in its humor. In some work of Evelyn E. Smith and of Margaret St. Clair, there was a quiet anger. Evelyn's science fiction novels, while witty and funny, frequently tackled deeper issues like gender identity. Smith's first novel, The Perfect Planet, which was written in 1962, was a satire. It was set on a planet which was once a health farm and is now a utopia run by women. ¶¶ 